From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. We are within the last few messages of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we are ending up chapter 32, the Song of Moses. We finish this. Chapter 33 in the book of Deuteronomy, just to give you a heads up, Moses is going to bless the nation of Israel, the different tribes. He's going to bless Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Naphtali, Issachar, and all the tribes of Israel. Chapter 33 is Moses' final blessing of all his people. And then we say goodbye to Moses in chapter 34. Uh, God takes him home, and uh, that's all we have for Deuteronomy. And then we go on, I think, you're always nervous. I did. I said, uh, I'm pretty much sure that we're going to be doing the book of Revelation. And uh, it's only taken me 42 years to finally sit down and teach the book of uh, Revelation. Um, so we'll be looking forward to that. So if you have your outlines, take them out. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Song of Moses. Deuteronomy, everybody knows in this congregation, it's Moses preaching to the Jewish people. Three messages. His final goodbye. He's been with them for 40 years. He's taken them out of Egypt. He took them through the Red Sea. He took them down to Mount Sinai. He took them 40 years in the wilderness. Then at the end of the 40 years, God said, go now, it's time, new generation. And so they went up. you got to see it, everyone. They came out of Egypt, down here. They went down to Mount Sinai. Then they wandered 40 years. Then they went up on the other side of the Jordan, with modern-day Jordan, and they went up in the land of Edom, Moab, and uh, sons of Ammon, that land. And he came up there, and he's right outside of Jericho on the other side of the Jordan, and Moses is saying goodbye to the nation of Israel. He came up there, they had war, they took over the whole land, the whole Jordan, uh, where Jordan, modern-day Jordan is, from two major kings, uh, of the Amorites, powerful, powerful kings named Sihon, king of uh, Og, and uh, you know, Og, king of Bashan, and Sihon, king of Heshbon, and he took over that land. Moses is, knows he's going to die, God told him, and so Moses is giving the Jewish people final warnings. That's what he's doing. And he's giving them, uh, he, he's taking them and he's, he's, he's told them how to live before God as you're going into the land. That's very important. Moses is saying, I'm leaving you. You're going into the land of Israel. This is what God wants from you in general, worship and love. This is what he wants specifically from you. If you don't, it's an agreement. Deuteronomy is an agreement between God and the people. It's what they call a suzerainty treaty. The suzerain, the master, the lords of the Middle East, uh, the ancient Near East, they would have treaties with their subjects, their vassals. And they would provide for them, but they asked certain things from the vassals. That's what Moses gave to the Jewish people. God did it. He gave them that covenant. And the master, the lord, the suzerain, God says, I will give you everything. I will bless you beyond belief. I will bless the land, your fruits, your vegetables, your children, your cattle, everything. If only you'll worship and love me. This is your life. And as I go through Deuteronomy, I kind of, you know, I've been so challenged the whole time for these last couple of years. The message is not just for Israel, folks. It's, it's not Moses and Joshua telling Israel, follow God. It's general. We all follow God. God says, no, this is your life. Open your eyes, Israel. You follow me and obey me, you will be blessed greatly. Physical blessings. We have the same promise today. Not physical. 
God says, if you follow and obey me and live for me, I will give you life. I will make life for you purposeful, meaningful, if you follow me. So Moses is telling us the same message. So he, he's about to leave that many, and he's giving that message to Israel to obey him as they go into the land. So, but he also tells the Jewish people, but if you don't follow me, I will discipline you. God has to judge their sin. Uh, and so God has always disciplined his children. If you get out of line, he will discipline you. If you serve him and obey him, he still develops you. But God has an interesting way of di- disciplining Israel and sometimes us. This is what God does. You sin, he deals with it. It's not always pleasant when God deals with your sin, but he will deal like a father. He will deal. God's like a father. Actually, look with me. Hebrews. Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews, whoever that is, it's a book of, Hebrews is a book of warning. Hebrews is a book of encouragement. The writer to the Hebrews is doing just what Moses did. He's warning him. Get out of line. God's a father. He will deal with you. And so the writer to the Hebrews says this. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. When God deals with you, open your eyes. And God's going to tell Moses. Moses is going to tell the Jewish people today. Open your eyes. Have spiritual eyes. Israel, you're blind. God's people sometimes are blind. Open your eyes and see the hand of God. In your life, if don't regard lightly, he'll discipline you. Don't faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he will discipline. He will scourge, discipline, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. Discipline is not pleasant, but it works for a good purpose. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Fathers are supposed to discipline their children. God will discipline them. For they disciplined us, our fathers, for a short time, as seems best to them. We make mistakes as parents. But God disciplines us for our good, so that we might be like him. Isn't that amazing? God disciplines you, so you will look like Yeshua. So you will be holy. So you will get rid of sin. And you can enjoy God's presence. And he says, all discipline, he says, for the moment seems not to be joyful. It's painful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, God's discipline, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So God does deal with this, discipline us. But he does it very strange. And Moses is going to tell him this. God will deal with your sin, and he'll use, for Israel, he uses an enemy to come in and discipline them. God uses circumstances in our life to discipline us. But God is going to tell uh, the Jewish people, when you get out of line, God's going to bring an army, an enemy, the nations, against you. And they're going to punish you because God's dealing with you. But then God says, but woe to that enemy that comes in and disciplines Israel. I always find that remarkable. I mean, I wouldn't want to be the instrument God chooses to discipline the Jewish people. He will use them, but then God says he deals with them and he judges them. But then, after he deals with your sin, he brings a nation in, he deals with that nation and punishes them, then God blesses you. Because it's always because God loves us. His discipline. He's not mean and vindictive. He does, he's not pleased with some of the things we do. So God's discipline is very interesting. In fact, this section, the end of the uh, Song of Moses, for three weeks now, God has been warning the Jewish nation through Moses. He's been warning them three times. You've been warned. You've been warned. You've been warned. Three times. The last two times is the Song of Moses. And so we see in the Song of Moses, the purpose here at the end of this is, the purpose is, fill it in in your outlines, if you have an outline. This is the end of the song. Look up here first. Okay. God 
told Moses and Joshua, teach the people a song. The people will know the song and they'll remember that God is witnessing against them. The song is basically, God loves us. If we turn from him, he's going to punish us and judge us. But God still loves us. But as long as we turn from him, God's going to deal with us. The end of the song is this. Though God will judge us. I know, don't come back to me and say, God doesn't judge me because my sin has been judged. God doesn't punish me because my sin has been punished. Yeah, that's true. Of course, I know that. I will not be judged for my sin because Yeshua died for me. I will not be punished for my sin because Yeshua took the punishment. I know that. And I'm going to heaven. But if I get out of line, God will punish me. All right, I don't want to use the word punish. He'll deal with it. Okay? So instead of punish, we'll say deal. Same thing. He's going to deal with your sin. Okay? Listen, he's going to spank me. Okay? Don't tell me he spanked Yeshua for me. He did, but he's going to spank me. I used to discipline my children. Becca, specifically, I remember. I'd spank her. She says, you're spanking me. Well, who spanks you? Anyway, so... (laughs) That was a very typical answer that I'd get from Becca. So, God will judge his children, but he will avenge them and deliver them also. He'll discipline you, and those those who he uses to discipline, God will judge them as well, and God will eventually deliver us and bless us. So follow along. Basically, what we're trying to do here in this message, if we can, we're going to really try to cover three areas. You could even fill them in ahead of time. But God will, uh, uh, God will judge his people, punish them for their sin. God will tell the people the reason you're getting punished is because you lack wisdom. You haven't seen the right things to do. And then God says, but I'm still going to deliver you and I'm still going to bless you. But there's consequences for your sin. So really, that's the three areas we're going. So follow it and fill it in. God's people will be judged and punished for their sin. Specifically, what God will judge Israel for. It's the first couple of commandments. For turning from God and replacing God with something else. Now, I try to pick and choose my words carefully throughout the week. Because that's exactly what Israel did and that's what we do. We don't think we are, but we do. We turn from God, our only help, our only means of salvation, our only means of deliverance and blessing. We turn from the only one who wants to help us, and then we replace God with what we like, what feels good, and we say it's God. It's it's not always God. We turn from God and replace Him with whatever we truly want. Let's follow and we'll find about. So God will judge His people. We don't escape. God judges, sees your sin, and He will discipline you. God's people. Children of Israel. God's children will suffer God's discipline and anger. That's what Moses is telling them. As he's going to leave them, Moses dying, he says to the nation of Israel, God is going to discipline you severely. I don't always like the words Moses in the Old Testament picks. But then I, I do realize God speaks in strong language. Believers like to say, well, God will deal with me. He'll deal with me gently. He'll watch over. Listen, God can deal with us not so gently. I remember this one preacher was in the hospital, leg up in the air, cast here, cast here, this, whatever it is. Whatever it is. And he said, this is the hand of God. God put me here. God knows how to discipline. God knows. And so he speaks sometimes in pretty strong words. To Israel, he begins this way. Verse 23. It's in the middle of a song. This is where we left off last week. So God says to Israel, through Moses, through Joshua, if you remember, it's Moses and Joshua together Speaking to the Jewish people. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, God spoke to Moses. Then God said to Moses, bring Joshua along. 
And they brought Joshua and they went into the tent and all of Israel looked at the tent and the fire and the cloud and they knew Joshua and Moses were in the cloud and God was speaking to them. And Joshua and Moses came out and told the people, this is what God said. Here's the song. And so this is what happens here in verse 23. God says to the Jewish people, I will heap misfortune on them. As they're going to go into the land, he's saying, God's going to heap misfortune on the nation of Israel. I will use my arrows on them. Not Israel's enemies. He will do that too. But he's speaking specifically, I'm going to deal with my children. They're going to have misfortune. They're going to have arrows. Idea of war. They'll be wasted by famine. God's going to send famine on our people? I thought God loves. And God cares for them. He's going to, they're going to be consumed by plague. Bitter destruction. The teeth of beasts I will send upon them. Not a pleasant message. As Moses, I would think Moses, don't you want to encourage these people? He's saying judgment's going to come on you. He says the teeth of the beast will come upon you. Venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will be reaved. The enemy's going to come in. Inside terror, outside your house, inside your house, both young men and old, the nursling, the old man, the young, the old, everyone's going to be disciplined. Why? Why is God so severe on his children? Uh, Let me tell you. If you remember, I've told you many times, the United Nation, actually the United Kingdom, when I say that back then, I mean the nation of Israel when it was the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom was for three kings, it was for about 120 years, from about 1040 to about 920, there was Saul, David, Solomon. 40, 40, 40. God brought him through uh, uh, the period of the judges from about 14 to 1,000. Now God united the kingdom. The whole nation of Israel is one. And those three kings. And then in 920, God split the kingdom of Israel in half. And he made the nation of Israel two nations. The one in the north was called Judah. The one in the south was called... I'm sorry. The one in the north... You could, some of you caught me, but you didn't want to say it. Okay. The one in the north was Israel. The one in the south was Judah. Both were the Jewish people. There was two nations. And so God says to Israel, I'm going to judge you. Says to Judah, I'm going to judge you. Why? What did they do so bad? They're God's people. Well, we, we see. Ezekiel told us what Judah did in the south, the nation of Israel, uh, Judah. It says, by the way, if you like dates, some don't. But if you like dates, the divided kingdom started about 920 BCE. Judah lasted from 920 to 586. Okay, about uh, almost 400 years. That that was the southern. The northern kingdom of Israel lasted from 920 to 722 for a couple about 200 years. And the kingdom in the north had 19 kings. Kingdom in the south had 20 kings. Kingdom in the north had no good kings. Israel never had a good king. They followed the first king, Rehoboam, uh, Jeroboam. The kingdom in the south they had about eight good kings. So why is God going to judge these people? What did they do? Ezekiel says what Judah did. You trusted in your own beauty. You played the harlot because of your famine. You poured out harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You also took your beautiful jewels. God was saying, I blessed Judah. I gave you so much riches and jewels. and The picture of blessing. I made you a beautiful, beautiful bride. You took all these. You took my gold and my silver, which I had given to you, and you made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me and you sacrificed them to idols. Judah and Israel did bad. They didn't do a little bad. They did real bad. They made idols. They took their children and gave them to demons. 
They burned their firstborn son. That was an evil practice that they did. The nations did. God had always said to Israel, no, no, you be different. You don't have other gods. They do. And so they burned their children, it says. And it says, you gave the children to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children. You offered them up to idols and causing them to pass through the fire, the horrible, horrible practice of giving your child to the god, uh, false god Molech. Now listen to, listen to God's heart. Judah, you did so bad. Then it came about with all your wickedness and hear the prophet go, whoa, whoa, whoa to you. It's like he's weeping. How could you turn so far away from God? Now, when I read this, I truly think believers have turned away from God. I really do. I'm not so concerned with the left bubble, the non-believers. I am concerned with them because they're lost. They're separated from God and they'll be separated from God for all eternity. So my prayer is that they might come to faith in Yeshua, the Messiah. But they live in sin. Well, okay, they're lost. They do a lot of bad things. Okay, I'm not focusing on that. I want them to get saved. But woe to the believers who should know better, who have a relationship with God, who've been taught the good and the right and the pure. Woe to you when you turn. It's worse for you when you turn than even the non-believers. Of course, you're going to heaven, but it, it can be bad. And God's saying to them, woe, woe, Israel, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every... You've done horrible, Judah, in the north. I'm sorry, in the south, Judah. They have done bad. Kingdom of the north, Israel, you did worse. God's people. Second Kings 17. Sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, watchtowers and fortified, fortified cities. They set for themselves sacred pillars, ashram on every high hill, under every green tree. They forsook the commandments of the Lord their God. They made for themselves molten images, uh, they, even two calves, the golden calves, the Asherah. They worshipped the, uh, worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they passed, made their sons also and their daughters pass through the fire. Listen, God's people had turned from him. And God had a responsibility to deal with his children. And he said, uh, they practiced divination, enchantment. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel. He removed them from his sight. Ten northern tribes. So why did God deal with the Jewish people? Because they sinned greatly against him. God was so upset with them. And I like this passage in Ezekiel. Follow along. God's anger and judgment. Look what Ezekiel says. Even though these three men, these, I guess God singled these three out as possibly the most holy of all men. Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the midst. By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. They couldn't deliver the people, just themselves, these three men. God says, if I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land and depopulate the land, it becomes so desolate that no one could pass through it, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, even though these three men were in the midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver their sons and daughters, only themselves. God was so upset with Israel because they had turned from him. Their only hope. They would only deliver their sons and daughters. They alone. Then God says, if I bring a sword. This is an interesting passage. First, God says, if I bring wild beasts, and they pray, I'm going to punish them. If I bring a sword, the enemy on that country, even those these three men were to pray, they could only deliver themselves, not their children. They would deliver just themselves. Or if I should send a plague against the country. That's a third thing God was saying. Ezekiel's building here. He's saying, I'll send wild beasts. 
I'll send famine. I'll send a plague. God is really going to judge his people. If I should send a plague against that country, pour out my wrath in blood on it, cut off every man and beast. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were to pray, they could not deliver their own sons and daughters. They would only deliver themselves by their righteousness. Then God says, For thus says the Lord, how much more if I bring all four of my judgments against Jerusalem? Sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut them off. God is going to deal with his children. Moses is saying at the beginning of here, Israel, you're going into the land. You're going to play the harlot. And you're going to remember this song. When the judgment comes, all you can say is, we deserve it. God told us ahead of time. We're going to turn from him. God's going to deal with us. And so throughout the week when I'm thinking about this, I say to myself, what about us? I understand God's going to judge his people back then, but not me, because I'm nice. Because God likes me. I'm his child. And God won't hurt me. Because he sent Messiah to die for me. He's certainly not going to judge me, is he? Well, yeah, he is. Is God angry with us? Yes and no. Does God love me? Oh, yeah. Am I going to heaven? Yeah. If I get out of line, is he angry? Yeah. Will he spank me? Yeah. Okay. God will deal with us. So when we see, I want you to see the application when God is speaking. How about us? Does God get angry? Yes. He still loves us, but he's going to discipline us. I've made the mention, because uh, someone told me uh, a couple weeks ago, months, Lisa, and then I don't know where she got it from. Life is difficult, especially when you are, especially when you're stupid. Yeah, Life is difficult, folks. Even for believers, life is difficult, especially when you're stupid. I'm not allowed to say stupid in our house. I can only say it up here. So, life is difficult, especially when you're dumb and disobedient. When God's children are, I'm not allowed to say dumb either. Anyway, there are a lot of things. France got her own rule book. We're not allowed to say it. But anyway, life is difficult, especially when you're dumb and disobedient. God will deal with you. If you don't read the Word of God, I didn't say a couple times a year. If you don't read the Word of God all the time, every day, if you don't pray, if you don't worship, listen, I'm not saying you're not going to heaven if you've accepted the Lord. I'm not saying you don't have a place in heaven. But in a sense, you have no God. There's no relationship. I'm talking to believers in the right bubble. If you don't read, and you don't pray, and you don't worship, and you don't uh, obey Him, in a sense, you have no God. You have no God. You have no relationship. You don't have true, lasting peace, joy, happiness. None of that. You're dumb and disobedient. Life is going to be harder. If you, I wrote it, if you curse and swear and lie, and cheat. And you say, why are my children doing what they're doing? Why are my children so bad? Why do they lie, cheat, steal? They're following your example. Don't say, you know, oh, woe is me. Because life is difficult when we've turned away from God. We set the example. I hear all the times people, they say their kids are older, 20, 25, 30. And I say to them, oh, do your kids worship somewhere? Oh, no, no, they don't go. They don't go anywhere. I thought, oh, really? Oh, I'm going to lose my earpiece. Okay. That's good. And I hear, I, I talk to parents all the time. Their children have gotten older, got married. I say, do they worship anywhere? No, no, they don't. I said, oh, oh. did they worship with you? And no, no, I had, I had trouble bringing them out. You know, I marvel. I do not understand this. Parents, listen carefully. When your children are 13, 14, 15. This is what I hear from people all the time. 16, 17, 18. And your kids are not coming out. 
And the parents say, I don't understand why parents, I use these words purposely. Why can't parents make their children come out? They can discipline them in other ways, but they don't want to force them to come out. I don't get that. This is the time you can lead them and guide them, and parents don't do it. And I see the children, 15, 16, 17, they say, well, they're teens, you know, they have their own mind. No, no, no. You bring them out. My kids never had a choice. Isn't that? They're horrible. They turned out to be delinquents. Rachel, right there. There she is, a delinquent there with her two twins. Back with her two and her one on the way. They're delinquents because I forced them. Did they want to come out every Saturday? No. But they knew this is where you belong. I don't understand when people say, why is my life in such turmoil? And why don't my children? You don't tell them to come out now? They're not going to go out later, folks. That's the way it is. We live lives that are moral, immoral. We have no relationships with people. We have trouble. We can't find a, a, a mate. We get diseased. Life is empty. And we want to know why. Well, we've turned from God. You know what it is? We've turned, say, we're not going to live God your way. We're going to live our way. We'll throw God in every so often. We'll appear here. And we think we're doing good. Yeah. When I always say, I'm big on this. We, 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 we date the unsaved. We get married to unsaved people and go, whoa, why is my life in such turmoil? Why? Israel said the same thing. Why? Because they disobeyed God. They turned from Him because we put other things in. God will judge His people. Let's go on. Let's go on. Fill it in. Because God is very concerned with His name and the enemy. God is going to deal with Israel. God has a problem in this next section. I want you to follow along with me. God's people will be judged, I said, and punished for their sin. God cares for His own glory. God deserves all honor and glory. God cares for his glory and the enemy's taunts. You see, because we're dealing with discipline, when God, 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 let me put it this way, God has a problem. When God doesn't discipline his children, let me put it this way, when God disciplines his children, the rest of the world says, oh, you have a mean God. Why isn't he blessing you? You're supposed to be different. If God disciplines us. So God, if God disciplines us, he's, in a sense, as pastor's going to say, he's got a problem. The world's going to condemn God. Or if he doesn't deal with them, the world gets on God. Why didn't you deal with your children's sin? God has a problem. How does he discipline? It's very interesting because sometimes God does send the discipline. Sometimes he doesn't. He knows how to do it. But he's concerned for his name, his honor, his glory, what the nations will say. This next section, follow along with me, Deuteronomy 32. God says, I would have said, because Israel turned from him, I would have cut them to pieces. I would remove the memory of them from men. God would deal with his people, except had I not feared the provocation of the enemy. God is concerned. God is concerned as Israel goes into the land, Moses saying, God is going to take the Jewish people into the land. He's going to discipline them, but he's worried. Because if he disciplines his people, he does certain things, the nations are going to say, they're not special. If God deals with us, if we suffer, God's concerned for his glory. And he says, he said, had I not feared the provocation of the enemy and their adversaries would misjudge, that they would say, our hand has triumphed and the Lord has not done this. So God sometimes sends the discipline and sometimes he doesn't. But God is concerned because if he disciplines his children and they suffer, then the rest of the people watching. You see, the picture is here. That when Israel's in the land, the nations are watching God's people. When you're living, people are looking at you. You represent God. 
So when God disciplined the nation of Israel, the nations are saying, you're no different. You're, you're suffering too. God would not get the glory. Or if he doesn't discipline the Jewish people, then they say, oh, doesn't your God deal with you? So God knows the fine balance. I'm not saying I have the answer. God knows when and when not to. It, Isaiah puts it this way. For the sake of my name, God says, I deliver, I, I, I delayed my wrath. Sometimes God delays the wrath, his punishment. Ezekiel says, God dealt with it. It says, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they live. God's honor is always at stake, folks. Always. If you're a believer. If people know you're a believer. If you don't live for him, the world is watching you. Because we're to give glory and honor. Israel's purpose, you know, when we say to our Jewish people, uh, Jewish people were the chosen people. What were they chosen for? And our Jewish people answer, we were chosen to suffer. Anyway, that's not why we were chosen. Jewish people were not chosen to suffer. We were chosen to tell the world about God. That's why you were picked. Whether they wanted it or not. If you today claim to be a believer, you were chosen to bring glory and honor to God's name. Whether you want that job or not, the world is watching you. So God sometimes will have to discipline you. Or sometimes He will hold off. But God will discipline you. But you represent Him. Look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Famous passage. David, great King David. He represented God. And the world knew it. And God, and David was a righteous, good king. And you gotta look up here. Everything David did glorified God. All the nations looked at David. And David did everything for God. And God blessed him. And all they say, because he serves as God. He's good. So then one day David decided to commit adultery. David decided to commit murder. And the prophet came to David and said to David, because you have done this, you give an opportunity for the enemy to bless me God's name. God is what the people are watching us. We are to honor and glorify God. Look what it said. Second Samuel. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme God. God had to deal with that sin. Our behavior causes people to either turn closer to God or turn further away from God. Woe, woe to us if we are causing people to turn further away from God. God will discipline you. And sometimes the people will look at you and realize that there is a good God. If you get out of line, God will discipline you. We represent Him. Whether we live an immoral life, whether we are out there uh, committing adultery, getting drunk, people are watching us and God's going to judge us. God continues on this song of Moses. First, He says He's going to judge His people. And He's honor and, he, and He's concerned for His own name and honor and glory. God will judge the people, or us. And we will either bring glory and honor to Him or cause the enemy to say bad about God. He goes on in this section. God's people lack wisdom and insight. Moses is telling the nation of Israel, you lack wisdom and insight, Israel. Can't you see by your life can't you see the hand of God? That's what he's saying. God's people are spiritually blind at times. Follow along what he says. Deuteronomy 20, uh, 32. Moses is telling the Jewish people, For they are a nation lacking in counsel. lacking in There's no understanding in them. Would that they would were wise, that they would understand this, that they would discern their future. God is saying to Moses, What do our people, the Jewish people, understand? 
that when they followed me, they were blessed. Their children, no miscarriages. The cattle, the fruit, the blessings. God would put fear in the enemies all around Israel. Open your eyes, Israel. When you follow me, I will bless your life. When you turn and replace me, I will discipline you. Can't you see it? Believers the same way. When we follow and obey God, God will bless you. doesn't mean you don't have problems. Don't, don't get the wrong message here. I'm not saying if you follow God, you're going to be rich. Some people say that. May it be. You know, may, may God. That's not true. But there's other people that say, if you follow God, you'll never be sick. Nah, that's not true. Don't believe that. There's believers that say, you'll be rich. You'll never be sick. Everything will be great. Nonsense. That's not true. But if you follow God through the fire, through the difficulties, God will always bless you. God will always be there for you. Open your eyes and see. He says to Israel, Israel, why didn't you understand? Um, where was I? Verse 30. Good. Israel, how could one chase a thousand? How could two put 10,000 to flight? Israel, don't you remember? You went out where there was one and you put thousands to flight. Two of you. That, the whole enemy. Can't you see? It's my hand. I'm watching over you. And the, it says, unless the rock had not sold them and the Lord had given them up. Indeed, this is what the nations are saying. Their rock is not like our rock. Our rock is different. God is saying to Moses, when the Jewish people go into the land, the nations will see their rock is different than our rock. Their God is different than our gods. When the fall, when the enemies came in to mock Israel, they knew Israel's God was different than their God. The nations feared Israel's God. Even the enemies could see Israel's God was different. Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magicians came to Pharaoh. You remember that? When the ten plagues came? And the different plagues. At one point, one of the plagues came. The first plague, uh, they would they make snakes or something? Uh, they turn the rod to snake. Their magicians did it. Then the second plague, uh, Moses gave them frogs. They're, they gave frogs. Then the third one came. I think there was little flies or lice or something. And they, their magicians couldn't do that anymore. And they went, uh-oh, that's their God. The nation saw it. And, and, and Pharaoh said, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. He caused their chariots, uh, chapter 14, 25. The nation saw this. Uh, Egypt did. He, uh, he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them dry with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Even sometimes the outside world can see our God, but sometimes the Jewish people were, were, were blinded. Believers are blinded. We don't see God is working in our lives. Rahab saw it. Rahab, soon as uh, the two spies came in, we said, we heard about your God. The Philistines had heard about their God. We have to realize that sometimes God is saying, open our eyes. I have all the time, believers come to me and they say this, Larry, why is my life in a mess? They say that all the time. Why is my life in turmoil? Why is everything going wrong? And then I sit back and go, now how am I going to tell them? I often, I say that. I hear people come to, this, this happens, a believing male or female comes to me and says, oh, God sent this person to me. Oh, really? I say, oh, yeah. They're the perfect person. Oh, great. I agree. Do they know the Lord? Oh, no, they don't know the Lord. But God knows. He brought them to me. Listen, God didn't bring them to you. Oh, no, no. God brought this person. Oh, 
I hear that all the time. We say, God did it. God didn't do that. That was actually the enemy to actually test us. But why is our lives in misery? God didn't bring that person. I hear believers say to me, God brought this job to me. I said, really? Right. I can't come to service anymore. And I'm too busy to do anything. But God brought this to me. And I said, mm, I don't think so. It doesn't look like God brought that to you. I hear others. I know I get touchy here on Saturday morning with sports. God gave us the opportunity for my children to be in sports on Saturday morning. I don't think so. He didn't do that. Oh, no, this is perfect for my children. No, it's not. What's perfect for your children is to have them sitting here worshiping. I was talking to someone today. They said, well, how about if they play at 8 in the morning and we come at 1030? I said, beautiful. You're teaching them great. We can play sports, but we need to be here. I hear all the time believers saying, God brought this person to me. Think twice. It's not always God that's doing it. God brought these things in my life. God brought this opportunity. No, he didn't. Listen, the devil loves to bless you. Ooh, I thought God blessed him. Oh, no, no, no. The devil wants to bless you. The Bible says that the devil appears to you with red big horns and a pitchfork so that when you see him, you'll run. Don't you know that verse? I'm looking for it. I haven't seen it yet. But there is a verse that says the devil comes to you. It was an angel of light. His ministers as ministers of righteousness. Demons. They will come to you with a smile and they will, they love to give you money, folks. He, he will. The devil will give you all the money you want. The devil will give all the opportunities. He wants to bless you. As long as he can replace God with something else. That's how you know. If it's taking you away from God. If it's taking you away from the things of God. It's not him. The devil is poison. And that's what God says to Israel. Follow along. Uh, you know, the devil, uh, they're, they're, they're spiritually wicked. God's enemies are spiritually wicked. Look what they do. It says in verse 32. Their vine, the wicked nations, their vine is the vine of Sodom. Their fields are the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters bitter. Their wine is the, uh, the venom of serpents and deadly poison of cobras. Anything that will replace... Write this, if you can. Anything that replaces God's plan, God's purposes, God's will, God's direction is not from God. Anything that takes you away from the things of anything that takes you away from reading the word of God, from praying, from worshiping every Saturday, from obeying him is not from him. You're lonely and you want to share your life with someone. I pick on the singles and they they want someone to share their life. I understand. I do. And so someone comes into their life. They go to what is it? I, I don't know. The E-Harmony. What are the others? Farmer's Harmony, and uh, they got all these harmonies. Christian Mingle, yeah, that's it. They're all Christian. Everyone's good. I met this person. I met him on Christian Mingle. So therefore, they're holy and godly. You don't know. No, God didn't bring that person in your life. Don't be afraid to say the devil did. If they take you away from God, they take you away from the things of God, and the plan of God, and the purpose of God. They're poison. Number three, and finally, 
God's people will be avenged and delivered. See, what I said today is this. First, God will deal with his children. He will judge them. He will discipline them. Second, I said, at times they lack wisdom and insight, God's people. We fail to see things. I'll tell you. Here, everyone look up here. Here's why you fail to see things spiritually. Because you're not in the Word regularly. Because you're not praying and talking to Him regularly. Because you're not worshiping God regularly, hearing the Word being preached. Worshiping with God's people. You're not sensitive to the things of God. So therefore, you lack wisdom and insight. And you go in the wrong direction. And everything you say, ah, this is of God. No, it's not. No, it's God not. God will allow difficulties in your life for a good purpose. So fine. And the last thing here, but God still loves you and will eventually deliver you and redeem you and bless your life. He will do it. Sometimes it's painful to bring you back. Sometimes you get the message quickly. God will avenge his people. This is what Moses says to Israel. God will avenge his people. Deuteronomy 32, 34. Is it not laid up? There's some heavy theology that Moses is teaching here, but follow along with it. It says, is it not laid up in store with me? God said, something's laid up. God, everyone look up here. God has something weighed in store, in his storage house. Is something not weighed for me? God's got it. Look what it says. Sealed up in my treasure. God's got something in his treasure house here. He's storing something up there. Vengeance is mine. Uh, vengeance is mine and retribution in due time their foot will slip in due time I will deal with sin <gasps> you don't escape with your sin God sees it God's holding up he's storing up really sin watch this it says in due time their foot will slip their day of calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them God stores up the sin until he deals with it he always does he deals with the enemies of Israel. He sees their sin. And we say, judge him right away. He doesn't do that. God knows the right time. and God dealt with Israel's sin in his time. God dealt with Judah and their sin in his time. Look at this. God's saying here that I'm going to deal with the nations in my time. God will deal with them. Genesis chapter 15. I want you to get this picture. The year is about 2000 BCE. That's 4,000 years ago. So how did he get that? Those who are not good with numbers. From now till zero is 2,000. And from there, zero to back, 2,000 is 4,000 years. So 4,000 years ago in the year 2000 BCE. I know that confuses everyone, but anyway. 4,000 years ago, God gave a vision to Abraham. And God told Abraham, when he didn't have any children yet, you're going to have children, Abraham. Not only are you going to have children, but I'm going to bless them. They're going to multiply. Not only are you going to have children, Abraham. You're going to have a nation. They're going to be live in the land. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you people. Abraham's sleeping and dreaming, and God's giving him this dream in two four thousand years ago. And he says, so "I'm going to give you a nation, and uh, these people are going to develop, and they're going to be going to another land. They're going to be there for four hundred years." And then he says here in chapter fifteen, "Then I will bring them out of Egypt." Is what he's saying. Again, he's speaking in the year two thousand. They didn't go to Egypt for another uh, 600 years, 1400 BCE. Then God says, in the fourth generation, they will return here. I always love this prophecy, God speaking to Abraham. God is telling Abraham, your children are going to be captive in a foreign land. Then after 400 years, I'm going to bring them out. And if I was Abraham, well, he was sleeping, so he couldn't. But if I was Abraham, I would have said, 
You're going to take my people into a land. They're going to be there 400 years. Then you're going to bring them out. God, you're missing something. I don't have any children. He had no children. He had no nation. He wasn't in the land of Egypt. God's telling him ahead of time. You're going to have children. You're going to have big children. Big nation. Then I'm going to bring them into a foreign land. Egypt. Then after four generations, I'm going to bring them out back to the land of Israel. That's the, what he's saying. But he says something interesting here. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Really what God is saying here to Israel, to Abraham, is you're going to have a nation. They're eventually going to go down to Egypt for four generations. In those four generations, in the land of Israel, where I'm bringing them back, there's sin developing here. And I'm watching it. The Amorites, 400 years, they're in there. They're a gross, wicked, horrible, godless people. I'm going to deal with their sin. He waited 400 years. Abraham woke up from the dream. He had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Joseph. The 12 tribes of Israel. They went down to Egypt. There are 400 years. 400 years later. Satan just came. Anyway, uh, it was a fly if you didn't see him. After all that time, I'm going to bring him out, bring him back to the land. Then the sin of this group of people, these wicked Amorites, will be complete. And I'm going to spit them out of the land of Israel. Because I deal with sin. You don't escape, folks. We never escape. He's watching. If you sin, you will be miserable. If you obey God, he will bless your life. That's his promise. To Israel and to us. Fourth generation. We see how bad these people were. The uh, 400 years later, Deuteronomy 8, God said to Moses, when you enter into the land, now this is 400 years after that vision, when you enter the land which the Lord God gives you, you shall not be imitators of the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. The people in the land, the Amorites, the wickedness, they made their sons pass through the fire. Israel later imitated that. What They use divination. They practice witchcraft. They interpret omens. They have sorcery. They cast spells. They have mediums, spiritists. They call up the dead. Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these detestable things, your God will drive them out. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. God is saying, I'm storing up the Amorite sin. I will deal with it in my time. 400 years later, he did. God does that all the time. Look what God says here in uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, to Joshua and Moses. Uh, book of Exodus chapter 17. Now, if you need dates, this is about 1400 BCE. And God says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Background, Jewish people came out of Egypt. They came into the land uh, wilderness when they were going down to Sinai. As the couple million Jewish people were coming out, a group called the Amalekites attacked Jewish people from the rear. While Moses and Joshua just brought them out of Egypt. And they started attacking the Jewish people from the rear. And remember the story, Joshua goes to battle, Moses holds up his hand, Aaron and her hold up his hand, and they defeat the Amalekites. This is about the year 1400. They, God just brought them out of Egypt. And God was bringing his Jewish people into the land of Israel. And the Amalekites attacked them. God's people, God's plan, God's nation. And he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book, Moses, as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And he said, uh, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have uh, war against Amalek from generation to generation. That was the year 1440 
BCE, 1400 before Messiah. So then the Jewish people went into uh, the 40 years in the wilderness. Then they came into the land, the period of Judges, 400 years later. Lord, when are you going to deal with the Amorites? Uh, you just said the Amalekites. It's 400 years later. Look at this. After all that time, after Moses, God said to Moses, after Joshua, after the period of the judges, all of a sudden King Saul comes on the scene. 400 and some years later, look what God says. First Samuel 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, this is way, way after Exodus. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over my people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. Wait a second. They did that 400 years ago. God says, yes, I know. I'm watching. I'm storing up their sin. We don't escape, folks. You don't escape when you turn from God. God deals with it in his loving, merciful way. These were wicked, godless people. God sent Saul, kill the Amalekites. 400 years later, I remember what they did. Look what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. What for? For what he did to Israel, how he set himself against Israel on the way when he was coming out of Egypt. That was 400 years ago. Nothing escapes God's notice or his time. You get out of line, God will deal with it. Now go, Saul, strike the Amalekites and utterly destroy them for all that he has done and do not spare them. God doesn't forget and you don't escape your sin unless you turn back. God's got his arms open. You say, I've done too much. I'm too bad. I'm too far away from God. You know how far away from God you are? A prayer. That's it. God's arms are open. Admit it and turn back. Otherwise, God deals with the sin. I don't know when. You said, okay, he can wait 400 years with me. That's okay. No, no. God knows how to deal with your sin unless you repent. When you do, God turns. Look what God says, Deuteronomy 32. Moses speaking to Israel. Indeed, he says, I lift up my hand to heaven. It's a form of an oath. And I say, as I live, if I sharpen my flashing sword, my hand takes hold of justice, I will render vengeance on the adversary. God will deal with the enemies, the adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with their blood. The sword will devour their flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. God deals with the enemy. Now, we're not going to turn to it, but I do. I, 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 this made me think throughout the week, and I could go on for a long time here with this. But in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is a great prophet in Israel. And he says to God in a prayer, God, how long will you let Israel's sin go on? Habakkuk's making this prayer to God. Habakkuk says, God, Judah. The nation of Israel, Judah, has turned from you. Are you going to let wickedness go? And God says, no, no, no. I'm just describing Habakkuk 1 and 2. God says, no, no, I'm not letting their sin go. And Habakkuk says, what are you going to do with Israel's sin? He says, don't worry, I'm bringing the Babylonians against them. What? The Babylonians? They're worse than us. You can't do that. And God says, don't worry. Why? Because I'm going to bring a judgment against the Babylonians. Oh, that's good. And then God's going to judge the people who judge them. Because God will have vengeance against his enemies. He always does that. The book of Zechariah, we're not going to turn it. 
God gives a vision to Zechariah. And God says, shows Zechariah four horns. And Zechariah says, what are these four horns? And God says, these four horns are the enemies I'm bringing against Israel to punish them. And the four horns were Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, the, Med uh, the Medes and Persians. And then God says to Zechariah, he gave him another vision. Four craftsmen. And Zechariah says, who are the four craftsmen? He goes, those are the enemies I'm bringing against the four horns. Because I'm going to deal with them. God deals. He judges the enemy. He promises he will always judge the enemy and avenge his people. Fill it in. Roman numeral three. God will always deliver his people. He uses different means. You know, the other day I was fellowshipping with the Lord and he was blessing and it just hit me. I fear God. It is good to fear God. If I get out of line, he's going to deal with me. But I also know when I was thinking about the fear of the Lord, I was thinking, Lord, I fear you, but you're so good to me. You're so loving and kind. But God wants me to enjoy life by following him and obeying him. God will avenge us, but sometimes we have to suffer for our, our sin. Follow along here. It says God will deliver his people. In your outline, Deuteronomy 32, God says this to his people. For the Lord will vindicate, he will bless you, he'll redeem you, his people. He will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, uh, bond or free, God will deliver you. Here it is. Here's the key. When you humble yourself and you say, Lord, I have no strength. I can't do it. It always is always so good. To say, Lord, I can't do this. You must do it. When God sees you humble and you turn into him, that's when God will bless you and deliver you. God wants us to admit that our only hope is in him. Verse 37, the way God puts it here. He will say, God will say, where are the gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Really, what God is saying to the Jewish people, he said, where are your false gods that you turn to? Israel turned away from God, and God says to Israel, so, where are they now? You turned away from me. So tell me, what was that unsaved person like? What was those sports that you had on Saturday morning? What was all that alcohol and drinking and partying? Did they deliver you? Were they good? Did you enjoy it? That's what God is saying to Israel. Israel turned to the false gods, and God says, so, did they help you? He's sort of mocking them there. And he said, so, he said, where are your gods? The rock in which you sought refuge. You, they ate the fat of the sacrifices. They drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them, uh, let them be your hiding place. This, what God is saying to Israel is really incredible here, folks. He was saying, all the things you trusted in. Think about it, folks. What did you trust in? Whether it's your job or your home. Whatever you trusted in. God is really saying, so let me tell you. Did it help? Did it help you at all? I found in my life, everything I've ever turned to that wasn't from the Lord felt short and empty. It can't deliver you. And God is saying that to Israel. You trusted in the false gods. You trusted in the other nations. You trusted in power and might and strength and horses and gold and finance. You trusted. How was it? Pretty good. We trusted in money and position and mates and different things. Can't last. It's not going to deliver you. What God is saying to Moses and Israel as they go into the land, folks, open your eyes. There's only one that can help you. You think there's others. No. God, God is saying here, 
See now that I, I and he, there's no God besides me. There's no help. I'm your only salvation, Israel. There's no hope. It's I who put to death and I give life. And I've wounded and I heal. There is no one who can deliver you from my hand. Israel, open your eyes. I'm the only one who can help you. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance on his adversaries. And he alone, he himself, will atone for his land and his people. God is the only one who can help. Now, if you turn from him, there's consequences. There's needless suffering. There's results. But God will redeem you and bless you. If only we could get the picture where God is trying to say to Israel and us, your only hope, it's like I was, I forget who I was saying to this week is, God wants you to be a fanatic. God wants you to be a fanatic. Now, a smart fanatic. He wants you to be a, God wants you to be on fire for Him. He wants you to reading, praying, obeying, worshiping, giving, serving, doing, so that everyone will look at you and go, wow. You are on fire. That is what God wants. I call it fanaticism. Michael Brown, the great scholar, he calls it normalcy. That's what every believer is called to do. To be a normal believer is to be a fanatic believer. That doesn't mean be stupid. Don't get up at your office and get on a soapbox and start preaching you're going to hell. That's stupidity. Be wise. But your only hope is to serve God. God gives the final warning in this song. Look what he says to Moses. Then Moses came and spoke to all the people, the words of the song and the hearing of the people. He with Joshua, the son of Nun, together they were doing this. And Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel. Moses said to them, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, Israel, uh, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land, which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Throughout all of Deuteronomy, God is saying to to Israel, this is your life. When I said years ago to my son-in-law, not this one, my other son-in-law in Florida, when he wanted to date my daughter, and I said, sure, you can date my daughter as long as you make me a promise. And he said, what's that promise? I said, you have to promise that you're going to read the Bible every day, for the rest of your life. Huh? That's some promise that you want me to make. I said, well, then you could date my daughter. So he made the promise. The rest of it, that's his problem. But he made that promise. What am I asking him to do? What am I asking for you? What is Moses asking the Jewish people? To be fanatics. There's only one who can help you, folks. It's God. Following him and obeying him. Don't think what you know is best for your life. Follow what God tells you. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That phrase, the fear of God, that fearing God means you're going to live for Him, serve Him, walk with Him, obey Him. The fear of God is a phrase I I love in the Scriptures. Look at me as we close with this. Job says this, Where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? God understands its way, and He knows its place. And to man He said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Fearing God is wisdom. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do His commandments. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, if it says it a few times, maybe God means it. I can hear people saying, oh no, no, no. 
God doesn't want me to serve him out of fear. No, he'd like you to serve him out of love and worship. But I'll tell you one thing that does guide me and direct me is the fear of the Lord. I fear him. The Bible says it is good. to I fear him, not a bad, bad way. I fear, folks, if I don't wake up in the morning and read his word, you know what I fear? I will lose his presence in my life, which is worth everything in the world. I don't want to miss a day because a day leads to a week. A week leads to a month. And then after I say, where is he? He's gone. I fear losing that relationship with him. That's what leads my life. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, uh, Proverbs, is the beginning of all wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One's understanding. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to everyone say it. Fear the Lord God. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. We read it a couple weeks ago. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. It's before you, God. Life, joy, happiness, prosperity, God's presence. What's the other one? Death, adversity, misery, sadness, confusion, emptiness, miserable life. It's before you. What's your choice? That's what God told Moses. That's what I tell you each week. In that I command you to love the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Keep His commandments, His statutes, His judgments. That you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are going in to possess it. Now, you know, some of, some of you said right now, you're right. I need to fear the Lord. And then you go out and it's forgotten. The fear of the Lord should change your life right now. The fear of the Lord should save when we pray. Lord, I will pray and read the word every day for the rest of my life. I will worship with God's people every week. I went to someone today and they said, oh, I have a little headache. I went, oh, good to myself. Not good that they had a headache. Why was I happy? Because when you have a headache, you belong here. Not a migraine. When you're not feeling too well, where do you belong? When you feel God's distant, when things are going wrong, where do you belong? Here on Saturday morning. That's the fear of the Lord. You don't just follow God when you feel good. You'll never follow Him. You follow Him all the time. Moses, Joshua, the Word. God is warning Israel to turn to Him because He loves us. God will judge you when you turn away. God does judge and deal with us, everyone. God will judge His children, but He will also avenge and deliver us. We need to serve God all the time. Walk with Him. The warnings of God are for our good and blessings, not for our me- God's meanness or punishment. It's all about for prayer. God, we thank You for Your Word. For the song of Moses, not a pleasant song for the Jewish people to hear. Who wants to hear, if I get out of line, you're going to spank me. And you're going to, sometimes your spankings are not too pleasant. Father, teach us to follow you and to have the fear of the Lord in our life. We want to commit our lives to you. Those in the left bubble, may they put their trust in a Messiah who loves them and died for them. May we in the right bubble become normal believers. Or as I said, fanatic believers. Because you are our only hope. The other gods of this world won't help us, Lord. You are our only salvation our only deliverance, our only hope. 
We want to commit all these things to you. We ask it all in Yeshua's name. Amen. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. Actually, Ivan, I appreciate what you just shared because um, it has something to do with what I believe the Lord laid on my heart for today, which is a message entitled The Heart of Worship. This, um, this is not something I asked for. I think this is a hard thing to talk about, and you're going to see why as I get into it. And uh, there's an awful lot of things that enter into this kind of a topic. I hope it's not too big a topic. I don't think it is for a, for a Shabbat morning, but I think it's maybe something that I won't be able to cover so uh, in-depth that you'll leave here um, knowing everything there is to know. I don't think you will. I think you'll leave here with a lot of questions, but maybe they'll be the right questions, and that's, that's my hope. I'm also uh, lining up all of my uh, cough drops here because it's been a, an interesting few weeks. Uh, my voice is still trying to recover from uh, the many hours of sleep that were missed in uh, airports and places like that and coming back into the United States and swimming home in the pollen and things that tend to affect me a lot. So why would it be important to discuss the meaning of worship. When we talk about worship, what are we, what are we talking about? <clears throat> um, when I came to believe in Yeshua, about 36 years ago, about this time of the year, I was directed to a congregation that emphasized the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We were taught to expect to become baptized in the Holy Spirit. We read books about the Holy Spirit. How many people ever read the book, The Holy Spirit and You? You're showing your age. That was one of the books that from our generation was, I guess, shared among all kinds. I mean, everybody that was around at the time was reading this book, The Holy Spirit Spirit and You. I think it was Bennett was the author, last name Bennett. Um, <clears throat> maybe a couple uh, that wrote the book. The Testimonies of Healing. What, what great testimonies we've even had today. Uh, healing, supernatural knowledge, miracles and tongues, prophecy, faith, all the gifts of the Spirit. These testimonies, back in the day, these were wonderful. They're still wonderful today. We were eager to know. We were eager to see all that God had for us. There were some activities that we engaged in that were maybe a little far flung. I'm not so sure today that I would engage in the foot lengthening ceremonies that we participated in or excuse me, leg lengthening, not foot lengthening, leg lengthening ceremonies. It was, some of you probably have. I may, there's probably a reality behind it, but they were far flung for sure. Um, we tried to believe, we tried to see, we tried to be involved in anything and everything that God was doing. Maybe sometimes we tried too hard. But back to my theme, the heart of worship. What we were experiencing was the last remnants of the Jesus movement. And that just shows you how old I am. This is, uh, this is how many of the modern leaders of the Messianic Jewish movement came to know Yeshua. was back during that day. People were bringing the message of Jesus to a generation that was hungry for the reality of God. My generation and those immediately before me were disenchanted with our nation. Mainline Christianity. Jews were also disenchanted with 
disenchanted with the synagogue experience. We were in upheaval politically. We were in upheaval over Vietnam. We were the children of those who had come through World War II, whose parents had come through the Great Depression. They had worked their fingers to the bone to provide for their children a lifestyle that uh, had evaded them. We were the children of affluence. Many in my generation rejected the affluence. We searched for meaning in getting back to the land, growing our own food, communal living, exploring the use of drugs, challenging the foundations of society and of economics, religion, marriage, nationalism, military power. Perhaps one of the reasons why the message of the Jesus movement was so appealing was that he was not the Jesus that was inside a church. He was not the God who was inside a synagogue. He didn't just go along with the religious leaders of his time. He was living outside of the established religious process. He was living by faith. He did things that were radically unexpected, like finding money to pay taxes in a fish. This was an amazing and wonderful. This is what we were looking for, a reality that went beyond the reality that we could see or hear or understand with our own with our own cognizant ability. It was after these hippie extremists encountered this unanticipated Jesus that they began to flood into churches that were being revived by a renewed outpouring of freshness and by the presence of a Jesus who was alive, who was performing miracles of of resurrection and was resurrecting even the idea of miracles and tongues and gifts. So new theology was being formed, and uh, the old theology didn't seem to have room for people to prophesy and express gifts of the Holy Spirit. Worship services were changing, and even wonderful denominations that had sustained a living faith over many decades saw the need to inject opportunities for people to interact with the Holy Spirit in their services. People would come to find it difficult to remain in churches that stayed rigid. They were looking for new worship forms, new formats. The Christian world was being rocked by the Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit and Azusa Street and things like that. Charismatic gifts were manifesting when they were allowed to manifest. Worship leaders were creating new songs that expressed the things that they were experiencing. Jewish believers found in this environment a new possibility. After having gathered as church members over at least a century through the Hebrew Christian movement, having meetings to share common interests and experiences as Jewish believers, they began to notice that their numbers were increasing. There were enough that they could attempt to have maybe a service of their own once in a while. And they experimented with that and what that might look like in a Jewish context. Little pieces of Hebrew liturgy were introduced, all the while trying to remain faithful to the forms and understandings they had learned through their evangelical Christian foundations. It started slowly, only a few congregations at first, then increasing. I won't go into the whole history of the growth of the Messianic Jewish movement, which is still, in my view, in its adolescence. But the themes of my message, the theme of my message is the heart of worship. And it's almost as though that Jesus movement spawned a completely new desire to reconstruct worship around this radical new view of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
There was the Toronto Blessing at the uh, Toronto Airport Vineyard. There was Brownsville Revival in, in Florida where people would come out and just confess the most shameful of sins and be, and be delivered and, and be saved. It was just some amazing things happening. Many of the people involved in these things were also experiencing a reconnection to the Jewish people, the roots of Christianity, the long-sought remnant who were also coming to Jesus. But as one who watched all this taking place, I can tell you that the Messianic Jewish movement has been ill-equipped to be the center of anyone's attention. Some would like to think we have answers. Maybe we have a few, but... We also have a great deal of immaturity, uncertainty, not knowing how to deal with our own foundations, trying to address new theologies, trying to understand our own roots from both our evangelical Christian mothers and our Jewish fathers. So here we are in Messianic Jewish world, trying to find our way with new theological directions, new forms of worship, new forms of government for our resurrected movement, a movement that had been dead for the greater part of 1,800 years, something that had died and come to life again, probably mostly because of the Jesus movement. So with many in the Christian world wondering what they can learn from the Jews who believe in Jesus, and with many in the Jewish world accusing us of being deceivers who are basically just Christians, Christian wolves in Jewish clothing or a Jewish talit, here we are. Also wondering at many times who we are and what we are. So, is the heart of worship found in the orthodox observances of mitzvot? Is it found in the Davidic dance? Is it the charismatic praise? Is it the Hasidic enthusiasm? Is it the observance of feasts? Or where is it? You cannot easily discuss this topic without also looking at some scripture. And one of the first places that comes to mind is a mysterious conversation between Yeshua and a Samaritan woman. Of course, John 4. Here's Yeshua. He's just come from Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, a rabbi, you might say. word rabbi means teacher. He contrasted the idea of being born of the Spirit and being born of water when he was talking with Nicodemus. And so now, after having discussed the spirit and water, he asks the Samaritan woman for water. Interesting little connection there. Born of the spirit, born of water, now he asks for water. And this sets her off on wondering what he really wants. Why would a Jew talk to a Samaritan woman? Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans at all. Those who are from Shomrim, this part of the land that had been conquered by the Assyrians and taken away captive and there were still people but they intermarried mostly with the Jews and so there's this separation and almost a disdain that remains between the Jews uh, of, of what is Judah and those who were of the land of Israel that had been taken away and, and destroyed in terms of having any autonomy and so there's this this underlying prejudice. And um, so as he's talking to this uh, Samaritan woman, the whole theme I know of the woman at the well has been done many times and maybe to 
to a, a large extent overdone. I'm not going to beat a dead horse. I'm going to talk about a few conclusions. But what can we learn about the heart of worship for us as Messi- Messianic Jews from this little story? Try to put yourself into the context. Again, back in that day, we didn't have a Christian world like we do today. Today we have a lot of areas of the world that are considered Christian world. And uh, the United States was founded as a Christian nation. And, and uh, so there's, you know, we didn't have any of that. You didn't have any of that in those days, in the days of Yeshua. There was no church. There was one major religion, and that's the religion of Israel. And then there's different nuances. And, 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 and she actually gets into a debate like that with him about, well, you know, we, we believe that, you know, we worship over here and Mount Gerizim and you all worship in Jerusalem. That's what you think you're supposed to do. And, and so there's this theological thing going on with this woman at a well. I mean, it's, it's just a remarkable. I'm having a hard time understanding how these kinds of conversations can even take place, except that they still do take place with Hindu co-workers, don't they? Things happen where people do ask us because they're watching. They do see things and they do know that there's stuff going on behind the scenes with us. So here are some conclusions. First, the woman contrasted the Samaritan view of worship with the Jewish view, and it was all about location. But Yeshua responded with an assertion that the time is coming and is now here that the true worshipers will neither worship in Samaria nor in Jerusalem, but will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Well, that's a very radical sort of a, of a thought, spirit and truth. And it's problematic for Jews to hear this, this saying of Yeshua. Why would it be problematic? What can it mean that worship will not take place in Jerusalem? I mean, Jerusalem is the place where worship is supposed to take place. Jerusalem is the place that was appointed by God to bring your sacrifices, to bring your offerings. This is the place where worship was supposed to happen. And to say that it will no longer be either in Samaria or in Jerusalem, what is he saying? Now, we do find later that Yeshua says something about the temple being destroyed. Is this what he's talking about here? Is he saying that because the temple is going to be destroyed, People will no longer worship in Jerusalem, possibly. They won't go to Samaria. That's not the designated place. They won't go to Jerusalem because judgment is coming and the temple's being torn down. But then what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, spirit, we know that Joel speaks about the spirit being poured out on all flesh. Is this what he's talking about? That the time is coming and is now here when the spirit is about to be poured out on all flesh so that People can worship in the spirit. And what does it mean to worship in truth? Why does he contrast spirit and truth? Are they contradictory to each other? Are they compatible? How does that, how does that work? And what does it mean to worship in truth? We do know that he says that your word, his word is truth. Torah is truth. So there's Torah and there's Holy Spirit blended together. And that's what we have at Shavuot, right? Shavuot is the giving of the Torah. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit. So there's a a blending there. And perhaps this is what Yeshua was saying to this Samaritan woman at the well. 
he was pointing to something that would happen where true worshipers would both walk in Torah and walk in the fullness of everything that the Holy Spirit has to offer. So maybe this is the heart of worship. Maybe this is what we're supposed to understand about the heart of worship. They won't, you won't be able to go to some designated place, but with faith in Yeshua as the Messiah, receiving the Holy Spirit, becoming true worshipers. So perhaps this Torah observance and this spiritual connection are a part of what it means to have the heart of worship. In Judaism, worship is wrapped up in service. Prayer is called service of the heart. The primary purpose of Jewish prayer is to fulfill an obligation, an obligation to pray, an obligation to ask God for certain things to happen. Various topic, topics for prayer have traditionally been codified into the service. So we pray for the patriarchs, for God's might, holiness, knowledge, repentance, forgiveness, healing, prosperity, the gathering of Jews, judges, judgment against heretics, righteous saints, rebuilding Jerusalem, restoration of the kingdom of David, acceptance of prayer, restoration of temple worship. So somehow spirit and truth would include a restoration of worship again in, in a temple. Maybe it does. Maybe there will be a restoration of a temple. Thanksgiving, peace. It doesn't stop there, though. It's also part of Jewish worship to bring this focus on serving outside of the synagogue and into every aspect of life. In fact, the synagogue is sort of like coming, worshiping, but then that prayer, that time, once it's done, now you go on and take those things into life. Since Jerusalem was declared as the center of worship, and there's a hope within Judaism for that to be restored, I just think it would be helpful to mention right here that the first time worship is mentioned in Scripture is in what would later become Jerusalem. It's mentioned as Abraham is preparing to take Isaac to Mount Moriah, which by tradition, Moriah is the place at the Temple Mount over which the Holy of Holies was placed, the place where Abraham offered Isaac on the altar. And he says to the young men, the young servants that are accompanying him and Isaac, he said, you wait here with the donkey. The lad and I are going there to worship, and then we will return to you. Now, <clears throat> they were going to worship, but what was he going to do? What did worship consist of in that place? It consisted of obeying God, but more specifically of taking the one hope, the one promise that God had given to Abraham, the promise of future generations that he says in Isaac shall your promise be fulfilled. Taking that promise, binding Isaac, his promise, his promised son, putting him on an altar and offering him as a sacrifice to God. This almost incredible thing, hard to imagine how this could even be, but worship somehow involved a sacrifice of something precious. In Abraham's case, perhaps the most precious promise that he had ever been given. It would have been easier for him to cut his own throat than to cut his son's throat. I guarantee it. So this is something having to do with worship. Worship has something to do with this 
sacrifice. The word for worship here is nishtachaveh. You hear it when we do the uh, matovu. You hear this word, we worship. It means comes from a root, root word, which means to bow or sink down. Uh, in the tense that it's used here, it means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to worship, to adore. Worship involves acknowledging another as having sovereignty, authority, superiority. This acknowledgement commands obedience and sacrifice. Obedience is given out of fear, reverence, or love of the one who is being worshipped. Samuel rebuked King Saul for his sacrifices because they were without obedience. He told him that God would rather have obedience than sacrifice. Here in the case of Abraham and Isaac, obedience included sacrifice, a supreme sacrifice. Paul speaks to the Romans about sacrifice and worship. He urges the Roman believers to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. He says, it is your reasonable service. And this word service, avodah, another word for worship in the Hebrew language. It comes from the same root as the word servant. To worship is to serve and to sacrifice. In The Art of Public Prayer by Lawrence A. Hoffman, the author speaks of two common themes to all religious gatherings, a horizontal theme and a vertical theme. The horizontal theme is the reenactment of how the particular group that is gathered has come into existence, how we as a group have come into existence. It rehearses the shared history of the group. It reconnects us with one another as a group that has a unifying connection with one another. The vertical theme is a reenactment of the group's connection to the supreme being. It's a personal rehearsing for the purpose of assuring ongoing connection with our maker and all that that is meant and all that it will mean. Worship in this context means service to the creator and to one another. It means sacrificing our autonomy and some amount of our individuality for the sake of others and for the ultimate other who is Hashem. Leading worship means creating an environment and an experience for individuals to declare their commitment to both the vertical and the horizontal in a way that clearly defines this group. It may be a unique experience or maybe an experience shared with other like-minded groups. Messianic Judaism is a complicated sort of faith. We affirm our shared history with the rest of the Jewish community and with various Jewish communities around the world. We affirm our shared recognition of the revelation of Yeshua as Messiah, the very Messiah, whom the rest of the Jewish world awaits. So we affirm that our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought us out of bondage to slavery in Egypt into our own land. We affirm that in the fullness of time, the God of Israel came in the flesh as Yeshua to reconcile the house of Israel and the house of Judah with himself through his own blood and by rising from death to await the time when he will return to rule the nations. We recognize that the name of Yeshua has gone out to all the earth for a great gathering of people and people groups for this name. These things are we things that we share. It's what defines us as a people. We recognize that our own people have been blinded for a season 
until the fullness of the nations have come in. What does this look like in a practical sense? Are we Christians waiting for the return of Yeshua and his revelation to Israel so that we can rejoin our brothers in the Jewish community? Are we Jews waiting with our brothers the coming of the Messiah so that we can settle the Jewish enmity that exists between Judaism and Christianity once and for all? The question is often asked, do you identify more as Jews who have Yeshua or as followers of Yeshua who happen to be Jewish? And sometimes we even ask ourselves this question. Who are we? How do we express our diverse identities with two separate communities? Are we somehow a third community that has taken its identity from serving as a link between the two? How tight can we be stretched before we ourselves snap under that kind of pressure? So the heart of true worship has to be expressed in how we live our lives. We need to find this heart. We find it in the experience we had a few minutes ago with the taking of the bread and the wine. Because, as I often point out, remembering biblically doesn't just mean, let's see, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's remembering a date, right? We had this little song that we learned in, in grade school. And so that's remembering a date. And if anybody asks me, when did Columbus sail? Well, 1492. It doesn't say anything about the Inquisition. That probably was the reason behind his sailing. It doesn't remind us of anything about all the things that were going on in the world. But we have this date in our heads, 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and kicked out all of the Indians, or at least took their land. So here we have this this historical remembrance. But is that what we're supposed to remember when we take the the body and blood of Yeshua? We're supposed to remember, oh yeah, let's see, he uh, was at Passover Seder, he gave it out, he said, take it, drink it, okay. I remember, okay, I can read it right here. It's in my Bible, it happened. It's a historical fact, it happened. I say no. I don't think that's all we're supposed to do. I think remembering in the Bible means taking the past and bringing it into the present. When we celebrate Passover, we say to the wise child, because he says, why do we do this thing? Is this because of what happened to us in Egypt? Because he identifies with his ancestors, however many generations back, as having been himself in Egypt as a slave. So it's remembering where we connect the present and the past together and, and we bring them together and we're remembering by experiencing again when we eat the horseradish and we bring tears to our eyes, crying again as the Israelites of Egypt cried out for mercy a long time ago. And God said, I've heard your cry. Sometimes he doesn't hear our prayers, but he hears our cry. And so when we experience the taking of that body, what are we supposed to be experiencing? We're supposed to be experiencing Yeshua in our midst. Right now. Not something that happened 2,000 years ago. He's alive. He's not dead. And he's not just, I mean, we know he is in heaven until the times of restoration of all things. But he sent his spirit. The same spirit that raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you every time you take and share him in the, in the body and the blood of Yeshua. Every time you share him. He's here. He's present. He's sovereign. We're supposed to be listening. We're supposed to be hearing. We're supposed to be recognizing. We're supposed to be honoring. We're supposed to be able to, to call, him and, call on him and ask him, how do, we, how do we do this? The Scripture says we can't do anything without him. Without him, nothing. 
So the heart of true worship is living our lives as though Yeshua is living in us because he is. His life coming through ours because that's really what's happening. How much of Yeshua's life is getting choked out by what still remains of me? Because there's still stuff that's me. I guarantee you I, I, I don't want that, but there's still a bunch of stuff that's just me. And how much of Yeshua can get past that? See, that's, that's, the, that's the eternal struggle that every single one of us as disciples experiences. How do we get out of the way so Yeshua can get out through us? How much of me needs to be sacrificed and consecrated and prepared for his service? A weekly shot of spirituality is not enough. I tell you, coming here is a weekly shot, and it's wonderful. And we experience some of the finest worship music that's in the Messianic Jewish movement, I guarantee you, because I've been around. And those who are offering that music do it sacrificially. They don't get up there and tell them, I'm happy to have with me Josh McGee. Yay! And we don't honor the player. We don't get up there and announce the names of our, because they are not here for that. They're here to help. But this is a weekly shot. What happens outside these doors? I walked out of a Baptist church uh, a few years back after a baccalaureate for one of my sons. Well, must have been a long time ago because they both graduated from high school a long time ago. And there, as you leave the parking lot to get out onto the highway, there's a sign there that says you are now entering your mission field. And you know what? They're right. This isn't where your mission field is. This isn't it. It's out there. So, as uh, somebody pointed out earlier, we must make a decision. And so I would like to pray that each one of us would make that decision. It's not just a decision now. Um, I know that there was a worship leader at one time I uh, heard him say, I'm not going to play any music today until everybody's worshiping. Because worshiping doesn't happen because the music's playing. Worshiping is happening because, happening because we make a decision to bow the knees, to prostrate ourselves before the one true God, to yield ourselves more completely, to be willing to burn up the things that need to be burned up. So that's when worship happens. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now, and uh, I'm just going to pray that we would worship. I know you feel like you've been worshiping the whole day, right? And probably you have. Maybe if you have been, you would understand why I'm doing this because this is something that I think we all need to experience at least once. So, Father, in the name of Yeshua, I'm asking you to empower each one here to worship. I'm asking you to take away all of the obstacles, disbelief, the doubt, the questions. Give each one the anointing to be able to release himself and herself to worship to release ourselves, to lay down our lives in worship. You said the true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And so, Father, we are here to worship you in spirit and in truth. We are here because you are Yeshua. You are the one who took off all of your, your godly prerogatives to join us here and to take away the enmity. You are the one who made it possible for us to worship. Because you say truth, I will now recite a little bit of 
truth because it's in the Word. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Yehuleratzon imrefi. Let the words of my mouth, hegiunli be the meditation of my heart. Adonai tsuri vigoali be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Father, may we learn to worship and we learn to find the heart of worship not just each week here but in our lives as well the shame yeshua amen amen thank you no matter who you are no matter where you've been no matter what you've done the god of abraham isaac and jacob is the same yesterday today and forever find the savior find yeshua hamashiach find the truth on solace radio several years ago i began to at this time of the service just give you a short little drosh on giving feels important the full sweep of scripture scripture talks a lot about giving amen how many of you know we are to bless our substance Nobody believes we're to bless our substance. All right. We are stewards over the things that the Lord has given to us. And I think it's a great thing. And I periodically get up here and share with you about these things that we're to take time to bless the things which are under our care, whether that's finances, whether that's material things or cars or computers, the iPhone that Terrence is texting on right now. It's it's work-related, scriptural, isn't it? When Moses verbally blessed the tribe of Levi, He conferred a blessing upon their things as well. Deuteronomy 33 tells us, Bless his substance. Moses is praying over Levi. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Now, that is an important opportunity and practice that helps us and our children to realize the value of taking care of the things that God has blessed us with. A couple of weeks ago, I laid hands on my water heater (laughs) as the thermostat and gas valve went out on it. And that may be strange sounding to you, to bless inanimate objects, but we've all seen the opposite in our workplaces, right? In our homes. They curse these things. We're so quick to curse a broken car, right? Broken copier, malfunctioning equipment, but how slow we are to actually 
bless these things. We curse our bodies, the aches and the pains in our bodies. We curse the economy. We curse our jobs and our finances. But the Bible records that when Obed-Edom took care of substance, the ark of the Lord, in fact, three months he took care of the ark, God rewarded them for their act of stewardship in his home. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. I want my water heater working. I want my laptop to keep working. I want my copiers to keep working. Amen? Do you hear me? All right. right, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward at this time. We want to ask the Lord to bless our substance, and let's give back to him what is his today. You can make a tax-deductible gift out the Tree of Life with our offering envelope. Please print your information, and we can give you a tax-deductible receipt in January of every year for your taxes should you need that. Father God, we thank you and praise you that we could be a blessing to Houston this week with last week's offering. Lord, that was just one congregation that we profiled in the IAMCS. Lord, we have 21 in Florida in the IAMCS, Messianic Jewish synagogues in the IAMCS. So, Father, we want to take this offering as well and do our part for Am Yisrael in Navarre, Florida, Edat Haderech in Fort Myers, Beth Israel in Jacksonville, Beth Judah in Norman Beach, Beth Yeshua in Fort Myers, Brit Am in Pensacola, Lord, Congregation Gesher Shalom in Orlando, It's Chaim Messianic Synagogue in Lakeland, Kehilat Bet Avinu, Lord, in Davie, Florida, Kehilat Kol Simcha in Gainesville, Kerem El in Fort Pierce in Port St. Lucie, Kol Mashiach in Melbourne, Mishkan Messianic Congregation in Ocala, Shorsh David in Tampa, Valrico, Wesley Chapel, Temple Aron HaKodesh in Lauderdale Lakes, Temple New Jerusalem in Dunedin, and Tikvat Ami in Tallahassee. Lord, these are just some of the remnant of the Jewish Messianic movement in the state of Florida. Lord, many of those have their own buildings. Many of those have day schools. Many of those have large congregations, large amounts of people. And so, God, we're doing our part today to be a blessing, Lord, as they recover going into next week. We give you praise, honor, and glory. We bless these things in our substance. Thank you for it. B'Shem Yeshua. HaMashiach. Amen. And amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, ushers. While they're receiving God's tithe and our offerings today, I want you to take out your bulletins. A lot of times I've debated whether I should just stop printing these things up. Burns out a lot of toner, color toner. But for those who read these, there is some information in there regarding all of our events coming up. I want to make aware of one event I did not get in there. It came to me late, and that will be, ushers, I'm going to have you come back here. Tomorrow at 12.15 here in the atrium, you can see the tables are set up. This is the final vision casting event for Skyline. Skyline has been having these breakfasts, uh, lunches, dinners for the last couple of weeks. They're neighborhoods and nations vision casting. I want to invite you to the 12.15 luncheon. It'll run for about an hour and a half. Those of you who need to leave for Hebrew at 1, that's fine. Uh, there's a lot of things happening that we can participate in. Of course, some of you are aware of what is happening. They're doing some things in the United Nations that we're a part of as well. They are doing some things in the Knesset. Tanakh studies are beginning next month in the Knesset. We can be a part of that. There's a lot of things happening in rural America Pastor Jim will be casting the vision for the final time. So if you would do me a favor, if you desire to come to a free luncheon, it's great food, by the way, about an hour and a half, click off the luncheon box on the front of this. The breakfast is a real short rendition of that, and Pastor Jim won't be sharing at that one. But 
If you desire to come back here, please check off that box and put your name and email address. I need to report these after the service to those who are putting this together. There's still a few slots available for that. Uh, we are partnering with our brothers and sisters at Skyline on several of these directly, and we want you to be in touch with what is happening. And so uh, this will be your opportunity tomorrow at 12.15, and you can give that to myself, those cards afterwards, and I'll take them and I'll give them to the appropriate people at Skyline. We've got, of course, uh, our, our, our High Holy Days coming up. You can take a look at all of those. That'll be on Erev uh, on Wednesday evening, September the 20th. We have a meeting beginning this Thursday night at Charlotte's house. You can take a look and see her on that and going through all of the high holy days. Now, I just wanted to make mention of, as we began the service, we were in this room on Tuesday. Pastor Jim called a, a meeting for all of the staff, and many of you know I'm on the staff as well. And um, he began sharing, and at this point, Irma had really not really come on the radar so much, but by about Labor Day it had, and Pastor Jim being on President Trump's council, he was getting calls over Labor Day for of pastors of large churches here in San Diego saying, you desperately have to get this message to Donald Trump. And what was that message? The message was really based on a book that I purchased and was written in 2004 called Eye to Eye, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel. First read this book when it was published in 2004. Wasn't sure if actually there was an update to it. In April, we were praying up top, a number of us before service, and He's actually come out with a 2017 revised version. But White House correspondent William Kennig wrote this book with tremendous documentation. He writes, America is now experiencing the consequences of Middle East policies, which have been opposed to God's word and to the preservation of his covenant land. This is back in 2004. He wrote this. If this nation continues to support the roadmap, affirming a, quote, land for peace approach, America can expect to experience the further lifting of the Lord's protective hand in an even greater measure. Quote, Gerald chapter 2, or 3, verse 2, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. It is a fact that Israel's very existence is in grave danger because of our nation's sponsorship of land for peace plans, which have led to the brink, her to the brink of war. What is happening in the world and especially in the Middle East these days is truly remarkable. But then again, Bible believers shouldn't be surprised because the Old Testament prophet Zechariah pre-warned us about these times over 2,500 years ago. Quote, Zechariah 12.3, And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. It shall come to pass in that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Zechariah 12.9. And he goes on to document... What do the following events have in common? I just want to read you some of them. Now, this is back in 2004. 29 major U.S. catastrophes and events from October 20th, 91 to January 28, 2001. 24 major catastrophes and events from March 31st, 2001 to November 10th, 2004 during Bush's term. The, the former was during H.W. and Bill Clinton's terms. Largest terrorism event in U.S. and world history. Nine of the 10 largest insurance events in U.S. history. None of the top 10 FEMA events. What do these things have in common in U.S. history? NASDAQ's peak followed by a major sell-off. U.S. and Israeli companies devastated. The two largest weekly Dow Jones sell-offs in the U.S. history. The perfect storm, the perfect fire, the perfect political storm, the perfect tornado. 88 tornadoes in 48 hours. 412 tornadoes in 10 days. Three of the four largest tornado outbreaks in U.S. history. Six of the seven costliest hurricanes in U.S. history. Now, this is 2004. 
I could go on and on. All of these events transpired on the same day or within 24 hours of Presidents George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, or George W. Bush applying major pressure on Israel to, number one, give up her covenant land, or number two, when one of their top-level officials was in active negotiations with the Israelis or Palestinian, Palestinians, or lastly, when they stated their approval of a Palestinian state. Message, God's covenant land is Israel's and not to be traded for promises of peace and security. Furthermore, those nations who sponsor and promote the land for peace efforts will continue to be judged and pay the consequences. Solution, the U.S. should stop the sponsorship of the land for peace effort and tell the world community that the U.S. will stand with Israel to help ensure her future and that her land is not to be given to the Palestinians, Syrians, or any other nation. If the United States does not do this, further devastation will come to America and any other nation that continues exerting pressure on Israel to participate in the land for peace process. And he goes and documents. It's incredible. This is a White House correspondent. Incredible book, and apparently it's been updated. So I wanted to put that into the, to your hopper. You might want to put it on the shelf or pray about these things. Are you ready? I didn't tell you what we're ready for yet. Um, we're coming up to the seventh month of the biblical year in the fall. We're going to observe Yom Teruah, the day of shofar blasts, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and Sukkot, the feast of booths. And these three focus our attention on the period of time yet to come, the consummation of God's redemptive program, and also picture our glorification in Messiah as he gathers his harvest with the feast of trumpets. The body is gathered to him, the day of atonement, the people of Israel are nationally gathered to Messiah. And finally, the Feast of Booths pictures the gathering of all of the nations to Messiah. And so we're living here right now in the summertime. We're heading into this time, not literally just for the season, but until the Lord returns. So what does that mean for you and I? Are you ready? The Torah tells us, Leviticus 23, 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from the harvest, from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so this verse teaches that there's coming a summer of service and labor. We've been doing that in the fields following the Feast of of Weeks. Shavuot directly leads to the fall harvest and the gathering festivals. This verse in Torah gives us some insight and perspective on our lives as believers living for our hope. What is our hope? The Messiah Yeshua, the return of the Messiah. We're in a time of labor. We are in a time of service, my friends, as we seek the lost, as we share the good news of Messiah, of our great God and what he has done for us in Yeshua so that all may get an opportunity to hear the good news. And so we anticipate after this long period of service, the fall feasts coming up in the seventh month. We're in the month of Elul as this program of God's redemption takes the next turn. But we can't enter into his presence before these feasts We need to understand how to appear before him. And so in traditional Judaism, this month preceding the feast called Elul serves as a time for spiritual preparation. It runs through September 20th of this year, this month of Elul. In summary, the Feast of Shofar Blast reminds us of the day when Messiah will return. Let us prepare our hearts that we will not be what the Bible calls ashamed at his coming. The Day of Atonement reminds us of the day when national Israel will trust in Messiah's atonement and will be restored back to God as his servant people. And finally, the Feast of Booths reminds us that one day he's going to reign over us all as he is glorified by all nations. And so as you and I get ready 
to approach these high holy days during this month of Elul, let us commit ourselves to pray. Not only that you and I would be prepared, but that in the true forgiveness, which only comes through Messiah, comes through Israel, comes through all people, that we would all be prepared to meet the Lord as the prophet Amos declared, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. I'm excited. I am excited to come meet the Lord at festivals, and I hope you are as well. I'm going to ask you this morning to turn in our study. We have an outline where we intend to go today. Just to let you know, by the way, it's, it's been a busy week. Last week, we just focused on the Houston Messianic Synagogue and the leaders there. And it's a great report, actually, from Rabbi Michael this week regarding all that had taken place. Just quickly, an update on the recovery efforts that we gave a substantial gift to this week. So far, we've had help or aid requests from 28 people. This is within their congregation there in Houston. The work of, on 12 of the homes is complete to the stage that the homeowner can handle what remains. Five of the homes are still inaccessible by our volunteers, but some, one or two, may be available to us as early as Thursday. This is two days ago. Our other homes may be in a few weeks. The water in two of the homes was above eight feet, others over five, all but two with six inches or more. The business of one of our members, a specialty manufacturing company, as well as his apartment that was on the premises, has had over three feet of water in it. The offer of help in the form of labor, vehicle, shelter, and financial aid from our congregants, as well as our online viewers and other congregations, has been enormous. And the heart of most of of our people has been evident in their desire to aid others, even when they're experiencing heart-wrenching loss. I spoke with one man, a welder by trade, who has been out of work since January. When I called last week, he had been pulling the carpet out of his house with the help of his brother. I told him we would send folks to help him. We had some supplies for him. He said to focus on others and give whatever was designated for him and his wife to another family. He said God is their provision, and the week before the storm, he received confirmation of a new full-time job. His parting words were, God is good. Another family whose father is out of work and with five adopted children to care for found that they are in a flood zone. When our crew arrived, they found that they had, there had been over two feet of water in their house. When I called to check with, their, with the mother, her first words were, your crew is amazing. These are God's crews. I've spoken with and prayed with many people, Rabbi Val goes on to say, in most cases, the fact, the mere fact that someone's calling to offer prayer and help is the greatest blessing. Many have wept because they've lost almost everything. Others have said, it's just stuff. Our family is safe. The stories are myriad, and I'm sure that there are more to come. There is so much more to do. I want to let you know that our organization, in partnership with the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, this Tuesday out of Morristown, Tennessee, Harvest for Israel, it's an affiliated Joseph Project supporter, is sending 253-foot truckloads of aid. That's probably about $200,000, diapers and all kinds of uh, foodstuffs and, and things that the folks will be needing in Houston and in Louisiana. We have staging areas there. We've been raising funds. We've been talking to a lot of leaders this week from Florida. Um, whenever you have 20 leaders on a conference call, Messianic Jews, you're never going to have consensus, but praise God, I believe almost all of them shut down their services and prepared their people for evacuation, and uh, we are going to be a blessing to them with this offering as well going forward. Go with me to Revelation chapter 5. I was looking at these scriptures this week and thanking God that I didn't have to preach from chapter 6 this week. We're still in the throne room where we left off two Shabbats ago in chapter 4, in which Yochanan is continuing his dramatic description of what is happening, the scene in heaven. His attention is drawn back to the throne of God. 
The throne of Adonai, as we looked at last time, is a place of sights, of sounds, of power, and of praise. And many often wonder, why take us to the throne room and spend two chapters on this stuff? Why not focus on the important things we want to know about? I actually had somebody call me this week on that. Do you know why? Yeshua did this because this is the important stuff. <laughs> Revelation chapter 5 focuses on Yeshua because Yeshua is the focus of the book of Revelation. He is the pivot point of everything else that's going on here. You see, the book of Revelation is all about telling God's people there are some rough times ahead. How many of you know Hasatan is not going down easily? This is an echo, actually, of Yeshua's words to his disciples. He said, in this world you will have trouble, tribulation. But let's don't stop there. What else did he say after that? But take heart. <laughs> I have overcome the world. And that's essentially what the book of Revelation is about. It's saying to every congregation in every age and every generation and every nation, you will have trouble. There will be circumstances that will be way over your head, too much for you. There will be forces in the world you are not able to control. You will face persecution. You might spend some time in jail. You might even lose your possessions. You might even lose your life. Why? Because you belong to Yeshua. But before God introduces us to all of those difficulties that you and I are going to face, He takes us to His throne room and introduces you and I to the solution. Why? Because Revelation is saying, is declaring, take heart, my friends, God is on His throne. And all the forces of heaven are in play on our behalf. You see, there's a war going on, folks. It's not pleasant to preach about. It's never pleasant to deal with. We're called to be soldiers of the king, and we have an enemy. His name is Hasatan. We have a task at hand. What is that task? Storming the gates of hell. We are taking back the people that Hasatan has enslaved to do his will. But if you think that he's just going to roll over and play dead about it, you have another thing coming. But the book of Revelation's message is that no matter how big and bad Hasatan is, Yeshua is greater. Guess what? We're on the winning team. We are on the winning team. Now, almost everybody has a picture in their minds of what Yeshua looks like, but almost no one visualizes him the way that he is shown here in Revelation chapter 5. Why? Because this is like a spiritual portrait of who Yeshua is here in chapter 5. For example, many of you have gone to the Del Mar Fair, other fairs, seen one of those artists who will make that drawing for you for, you know, 5 bucks, 10, 20 bucks. How many of you have ever had your portrait drawn at those, at those fairs? Well, does that portrait look exactly like you? No. What is that portrait? It's a caricature, isn't it? What the artist does is that he takes one of your physical characteristics, magnifies it. If you have bushy eyebrows, he makes them larger than life. If you have a strong chin, he draws, he gives you a big chin. If you have a toothy smile, what, you just got a lot of teeth right on that caricature portrait. And that's what we have here in Revelation chapter 5, a spiritual portrait of Messiah, where the artist is essentially bringing and exacerbating the truths about Yeshua to be larger than life. So it makes an impact upon us. Go with me to Revelation 5. Let's put up verse 1, guys. We're still on the throne from last time, chapter 4. Next, I saw in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. 
Let's talk about this seven-sealed scroll for a minute. Books, as you and I know them today, have binding on, on one side, right, of the page. But these were not produced until after 200 or so CE or AD. Up until that time, all books were bound together with the pages sewn or glued to each other in the form of a scroll, much like our Torah scroll. Smaller books had just one post. The pages were all wrapped around that one post, whereas larger scrolls had two posts. And the scrolls of 2,000 years ago were very expensive in large part because each scroll was printed, as we know today, laboriously by hand, right? Our Jewish people used parchment for their religious writings, made from the skins of clean animals. On the other hand, the Egyptians used papyrus reeds, which were processed into a paper-like material. Other cultures didn't even have these paper substitutes like the Egyptians, and they wrote all of their books on stone or or clay-like tablets. And John Yochanan here sees a scroll, the Greek word epi, he sees a scroll on opened right hand, not in his hand, on his hand, suggesting its source, his authority and power adequate to translate its contents into action as he sat on his throne. Now, this scroll was the focus of John's attention in this chapter, and it is what the Messiah Yeshua opens, we're going to look at next week, or unseals in chapter 6, resulting in the judgments that will come upon the earth. Its contents comprise almost all the revelation that's going to follow. And so the revelation, this revelation scroll may may be the same previously unrevealed part of the book or the prophecies or the words that Adonai instructed Daniel to seal until the end times. Daniel 12, 4 and 9 tells us that. Now, the fact that the scroll is written, throw up verse 1 again, guys, on the back is unusual. Normally, scrolls were not written on both sides. They were just written on one side. And then when the scroll was rolled up, the writing was, of course, obviously then protected, right? But it's written this way, I believe, to make a huge point. If you have one piece of paper, you write on the front of it, then you write on the back of it, nobody can add anything more to it, right? Your document, God's document, is complete. Now consider the implications of what that means. Adonai has got one decree that is totally complete and totally sufficient to straighten out this mess that you and I and all the world is suffering from. The scroll, verse 1, had seven seals. God had sealed it with these seven seals, suggesting the profound nature of the, revel- of the revelation that was in it. You see, important legal documents in the ancient Near East as well had seals, such as the seals that were on the decrees in Esther's day, chapter 8, uh, chapter 3 and chapter 8 in the book of Esther. Often, it would be a patch of melted wax poured on that paper and then an object. In that case, in Esther, the king's signet ring would be pressed onto the seal, right? To make it official. Other legal documents as well were sealed in such a way as to make it impossible to open the document without breaking these seals. Each seal on the scroll had to be opened separately. One would read the section that was to be read and then would come upon another seal. And then that seal would have to be broken before one could continue reading and so on. Roman law required as well that people seal their wills seven times because they were very important documents. So what is this scroll? Now, this is where I deviate a little bit from traditional interpretation. Some interpreters will tell you that the scroll is the title deed to the world. 
based on the prophet Jeremiah describing a scroll like this one in chapter 16 of 36 of Jeremiah, describes in that passage in Jeremiah a terrible war going on. Jeremiah had been telling Judah in that passage that they were going to be taken into captivity in order to prove that he believed that one day they would actually be restored from captivity and return back to the land of Israel again. Jeremiah bought this piece of land from his cousin. And he writes on that scroll all the evidences, all the witnesses, everything on it. And he rolls up the scroll and seals it. But in that scroll, in Jeremiah's scroll, the outside could be read. He put the scroll into an earthen vessel to keep a long time to prove this parcel of land belonged to Jeremiah or his heirs because he had the right as kinsman redeemer to purchase, to redeem this land the fellow was selling him. And so the interpreters will tell you that this helps us understand what this scroll is here in Revelation, just like the scroll in Jeremiah was the title deed redeemed by Jeremiah, the scroll sealed with seven seals here, they say, is the title deed of all the world, and that the one who is worthy, the kinsman redeemer, the one who has the right to redeem, could open the scroll. Sounds great. My response to that, that's ridiculous. Creator God needs no such deed to secure his divine ownership of creation. Now, right away, I've just burned 80% of the commentaries. I'm going to burn the other 19%. Others say this is his last will and testament. Ridiculous. Our creator lives forever. My friends, we observed two Shabbats ago that the judgment court in heaven in many ways is similar to the judgment porch of the king of Israel. The king of the universe is sitting on the throne of judgment. It's his duty to judge the case that's coming before the court. The case has been brought before the court, we learned last time, by four living beings and by 24 elders on behalf of all the righteous of heaven and earth, especially we looked at on behalf of all Israel. The scroll, here's what it is. It's the king's response. It is his righteous judgment in the form of his royal decree containing his comprehensive judgment and solution to all aspects of the problem. What's the problem? Rebellion. That's what the scroll is. Now let's go on. Look at verses 2 and forward here. And I saw, John writes, a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? But no one in heaven, on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look inside it. I cried, John's writing, I cried and I cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside of it. And so the specific identity of the mighty angel, maybe Michael, we don't know, probably unknowable, maybe. But notice here that no created being had authority or was able to break the seals or even to learn of Adonai's plans that were contained in the scroll. My friends, what simpler way of picturing God's ultimate sovereignty over all of history than this picture of the scroll resting on the hand of Adonai. You see, however strong evil become, however fierce be the satanic evils that come against us as God's people on this earth, history still rests on God's hand. The solution to all the trouble in the universe is offered here, but apparently there's nobody worthy. Apparently there's nobody able to implement the solution. And so sensing John was sensing here that the ecclesia's hope was in jeopardy. He begins to weep loudly, the Bible tells us. 
Let's go on, verse 5. One of the elders said to John, to me, don't cry. Look, the lion of the tribe of Yehudah, the root of David, has won the right to open the scroll and seven seals. And then I saw standing there with the throne and the four living beings in the circle of the 24 elders, a lamb that was appeared to have been slaughtered. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 5's dramatic pronouncement illustrates for us the absolute necessity of Messiah. My friends, without Messiah, there is no hope. Because he lives, you have hope, I have hope. We find a juxtaposition of here a lion and the lamb, both of which full of messianic imagery. One of the clearest expressions in the Brit Chadashah, the new covenant, of the dual functioning of our Messiah Yeshua. The description of the Messiah, verse 5, as the lion. Where is that coming from? It's drawing on Jacob's blessing, on Jacob's prophecy upon his son Judah. Genesis 49, 9 and 10. You recall in that passage that Jacob Dad was prophesying that a worthy lion of the tribe of his son Judah would arise with the right to rule. And it was a promise made to Judah, most likely one of those 24 elders taking part in the judgment proceedings as we looked at last time in heaven. In fact, that likely being the case, if you're with me anyway, I would expect the elder who announced to John the worthy lion who was of the tribe of Judah was Judah himself. The lion suggests a kingly Messiah, the Messiah who will set up his messianic kingdom, bringing Israel back to her land, executing judgment and ruling over the nations instead of the nations ruling over Israel. The lion of the tribe of Yehudah is also what John said, the root of David, the Davidic covenant referencing Messiah's Davidic connections, drawing on Isaiah. 11, 1 to 10. I told you when we first started here, if you don't understand Isaiah and Zechariah, man, you're going to be clueless going through the book of Revelation. Speaking of Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, which includes details about Messiah's rule, the messianic age of peace, which he establishes, and by his incarnation, obedient life and atoning death, Yeshua has won the victory over human sin, which gives him and only him the right to open the scroll and its seven seals. You still with me? All right, well, many, many have found it impossible, if this is the case, however, to reconcile this impressive picture of the magnificent lion with what he sees next, verse 6, the lamb, which is also another strong messianic symbol shown in the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 7. But this is the image that God wants to burn in our minds. When we see Yeshua in heaven, he's not going to be a literal lamb. I talked about the character issue that we get painted at the fair. But it's a picture of what? Of who Yeshua really is. The lamb is symbolic of Jewish traditions, Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah son of Joseph, the suffering servant Messiah. Lions, on the other hand, are powerful, right? They are majestic. They are dangerous. But lambs, And in this case, the Greek word is arneon, a little lamb, are woolly. They're soft, gentle, apparently harmless. And here we're confronted with a biblical paradox. Our mighty lion is a lamb. Messiah combines both sets of characteristics. How can this be? Because lambs have one important characteristic in Scripture. Lambs 
soft, cuddly, gentle, are used for sacrifice. There's, this is a lamb appearing, the Bible tells us, John sees. Apparently, it has been slaughtered. The marks of its sacrifice in heaven are still seen because he had obeyed Adonai even to death, has ransomed Israel and all who have joined themselves to Israel with his own blood. Yeshua alone, my friends, is worthy to open the scroll and its seal. And so as we consider the Lamb more closely today, in the center of all of the angelic creatures gathered around the throne, my friends, this is no ordinary Lamb. This is a Lamb who is standing, ready to complete His work, prepared to exercise His power. Now, it's interesting that the Bible tells us that this Lamb has seven horns, right? Seven eyes. Horns are, of course, a symbol of authority in the Tanakh, signifying power and strength and honor. And, and seven, as we learned in the study early on in chapter 1, is a number of completeness. But, and so Yeshua here has complete power. The seven eyes, we learned earlier, symbolizes what? The seven spirits of God. And so the Lamb has complete knowledge through all the earth to match His complete power. He is not only omniscient, He's omnipotent. omnipotent. This is a good word for us as we're grappling with Irma and the Mexico earthquake and all this stuff. There's a reason why this is the order of how the book rolls forward. Go to, go to verse 7 with me. And He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And so next John sees God, Adonai, on the throne and the Lamb, apparently, evidently, potentially in human form, coming and taking the scroll out of His right hand. What does that mean? Well, it's symbolizing here a transfer of authority from Adon, from the Father to the Son, who in turn is going to reveal the future and execute the judgment. From the lion turned lamb taking the scroll, there are several areas we want to look at today. Number one, God, Adonai's strength is disguised as weakness. The secret to God's strength, my friends, is His apparent weakness. Look at the Lamb of God dying on the tree of sacrifice, right? Was there any greater appearance of weakness on God's part than that? Yeshua's power was hidden in apparent weakness. And Isaiah prophesied about it again, Isaiah 53, 7. The irony is that Yeshua was able to come down from that execution stake, but He chose not to do that. What God was doing there at Golgotha was the most powerful act that he ever would perform, my friends. The appearance of weakness is not a concern for God. It is God's strength. Look at it with me, 1 Corinthians. Paul writes it this way in verse uh, chapter 1. In verse 25, for God's nonsense is wiser than humanity's wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than humanity's strength. But God chose what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise. God chose what the world considers weak in order to shame the strong. I'm always cognizant of these verses when I look out at the Messianic movement. We're such a weak-looking movement in terms of the gigantic Jewish community. But God chose what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the world. Yeshua now has the power over sin and death. And all who trust in Yeshua are redeemed. What does that mean? We're taken by force from the realm of Hasatan, and now we're a part of the kingdom of God. God's strength is disguised as a weakness. Look for it in your life. Number two, we have to recognize today that God, Adonai, has a plan. He has a plan. 
because there's a scroll on God's hand, there's a plan. And seeing that it's on his hand means, my friends, it is going to be fulfilled, that plan. History is headed somewhere. His, his story. God's plan was that everything in heaven and on earth, even under the earth, the Bible tells us, would be put in Messiah's authority. Paul says it like this to the Ephesians in chapter 1. Guys, you have that? He has made known to us his secret plan, his mysterion, which by his own will he designed beforehand in connection with the Messiah and will put into effect when the time is ripe his plan to place everything in heaven and on earth under the headship of Messiah. And the good news for us is that just as God has a plan for heaven and earth, he also has a plan for you and for me. And Jeremiah said it this way, chapter 29, For I know the plans that I have in mind for you, says Adonai, plans for well-being, not for bad things, so that you can have hope and a future. God has a plan, and God is in control as well, my friends. Sometimes we look today, this morning, we look at our world. We see it seems to some of us, it seems that evil is winning. But we have the Scripture, don't we? And we know who wins in the end. Adonai is in control. He's in control. Appearances are deceiving. Now, most of us, last Saturday night, did not pay the $100 to watch Mayweather McGregor. Mayweather versus McGregor. But many of us are old enough to remember or have seen what was termed the rumble in the jungle. Muhammad Ali and George Foreman went at it, squared off in the ring in Zaire, Central Africa, Africa, in, on October 30th, 31st, 1974. Now, how many of you have seen the clips? Maybe you saw it live. I don't know. But when you watch it, Foreman was considered the favorite because of his devastating punch. But Ali did something that no other fighter had dared to do. He held up his arms. He leaned back into the ropes and allowed Foreman to punch away at him with really little defensive maneuvering away from George Foreman. Foreman beat on Ali until he could punch no more for eight successive rounds. And when the moment came, round nine, Ali bounced off the ropes, knocked him out. You see, even appearances were deceived. Even though it looked like Ali was losing that fight, he was in control the whole time. Come on, somebody. He took all of those punches for eight rounds because he knew he was going to deliver the final one. I'm teaching you something about God. God is similar in this way that he's using a similar technique, if you'll allow me, on the devil and evil. You see, just when the anti-Messiah is coming to the fore, amassing his armies, spending, spending himself fighting the Lord and God's people, just when it looks like the kingdom of God might be on the ropes, God is going to deliver final blow. Hallelujah. Now here's where I want to get to the final verses. Look at what's going on. When he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down in front of the Lamb. Each one held a harp and gold bowls filled with pieces of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And so this transfer, verse 7, this transfer of authority from the Father to the Son triggers something. It triggers what? An outpouring of worship, an outpouring of praise for the Lamb. Because it signified that the Messiah would begin imminently to judge the four living creatures, the 24 elders who had praised God earlier for his perfection and his creation now prostrate themselves in worship before the Lamb. They're affirming his deity. 
By the way, the harp is the most usual instrument you'll find in the Tanakh for praise in the book of Psalms as well. Gold-filled bowls are filled with incense here. They're among the accoutrements we find all through Scripture. They symbolize the prayers of God's people for relief. We've just given up some incense to God today for relief in Florida, etc. And notice here that no prayer is forgotten and will be answered in God's providential judgments. I mentioned from the fourth chapter two weeks ago the place of of worship, the place of of prayer, the the place of praise must be perceived if you and I are going to get the deeper message of the book of Revelation. They are the keys to the release of God's purpose. At various crucial points already and as we go forward in our study in the book of Revelation, worship, prayer, and praise appear in conjunction with each new step of redemption that there, it, the advance in delivering the earth from, from evil. Now go on, verse, verse 9, Revelation 5, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals. How many of you know what key that song was in? It has to be in either A minor or E minor because no other messianic songs are in anything else than A minor or E minor, it seems. Because you were slaughtered. At the cost of blood, you ransomed for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Verse 10, you made them into a kingdom for God to rule. Kohanim, priests, to serve Him, and they will rule over the earth. And so the four living beings, along with the 24 elders, they begin to sing a new song, a fresh song, a distinctive in quality song in of praise. Now it may be, it says new, it may be new in the sense that it celebrates Messiah's death as he inaugurated a new covenant. But it also might be new in the sense that it represents new praise for a new deliverance about to take place. Now, notice here, paradoxically, in this new song, the lion's victory is his being slain as the lamb. Verse 9, ransoming whom? A multi-ethnic multitude by his blood. The reason he's worthy is not merely because he's God, but because he was slain. And they sang that the lamb receives honor as being worthy in view of four different acts. Number one, says you were slaughtered, his death. The redemption of a people for God by his death, the cost of his blood, the Bible says. Now, this doesn't mean that every individual will be born again. Don't misunderstand the scriptures. Although Yeshua died for everyone, only those who appropriate the death of Messiah, the benefits of his death by, by faith will be. The creation of a kingdom and priests for God, they're, they're singing this new song about that by the Lamb's death and the blessing of his people and allowing them to reign or to rule on the earth, over the earth during the millennium. And even after that, April, if you come forward, final verses today, as we're in the throne, then I looked and heard the sound of a vast number of Malachim angels, thousands and thousands, millions and millions. They were all around the throne, the living beings and the elders. And they shouted out, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. And to hurt every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea, yes, everything in them saying to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb belong praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. The four living beings said, El Melech Amman, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So the scene changes. We draw back to a larger view. In innumerable hosts of angels, it says, now join 
the four living beings now join the 24 elders in ascribing worth to the Lamb. Stand with me today. The Lamb deserves to receive all riches and honor and power and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And in his vision, John saw every created thing in every part of the universe giving praise to God the Father and to the Lamb. It's a look forward, my friends, to the end of the history on planet Earth when every creature is going to bow his or her knee to the Messiah, Yeshua, bank on it, count on it, the Scriptures are true. And so these two chapters, I want you to always remember them as we go forward in our study, chapters 4 and 5, present God's dwelling place, present heaven as a real place. John saw God receiving honor there, surrounded by millions, this translation says, upon millions of angelic worshipers. Even though John saw a vision, it was a vision, my friends, of something that does truly exist. So glad I'm preaching today on this. It's going to get real, real, real next Shabbat. God of our fathers, we do come before you. We thank you and praise you for this glimpse into heaven. You have the solution, the righteous judgment. Lord, we don't presume to fully understand by any means what is happening. Just this week, three hurricanes, an 8.1 earthquake, other fires. Lord, just in one week. But we recognize as we look through the sweep of prophecy and future prophecy that we're right up near the beginning of the birth pang. We're going to look at next week. Yeshua taught us what these birth pains look like. And so, God, we didn't ask to be born into this life into the 21st century, but God, we're here, and we're asking for marching instruction. So many in our city don't know you. So many in our nation have turned their back on you. Lord, would you be, would you allow us to be the, the Mordecais that prepare the Esthers to go before the king at this time? Lord, would you allow us to be those? Would you allow us to be the hands and feet of Yeshua to bring a cup of cold water to those who have been displaced and diapers? canned goods, etc., God. Be the hands and feet of Yeshua in this time when the world is reeling. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that as the redeemed remnants of Israel, we're not just talking a good game, we're doing it. For by your good works, you would put to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. I praise you for raising up the MJA to be able to spring into action, not only in Israel to be a blessing there, but Lord, even in this nation. Thank you for Harvest of Israel, Dr. Dean Hahn out in Morristown. Lord, that has risen up to take his trucks and to fill them with goods from the Messianic world, to bless the Messianic communities in Louisiana and Texas and now all throughout the north and south, east and west of Florida. God, we know that when Katrina happened, 40% of congregations just folded, closed, couldn't stay open, damage too great. So God, our task is to keep these places of worship open. When people need to come and worship and to pray and to fall prostrate before you and to ask why, that's our part. Thank you for all the relief efforts happening by our government. And Lord, our assignment is to keep these places of worship open for those to come before a holy God in this time of preparation in Elul. Lord, at some future Rosh Hashanah, you're going to break through the sky. And we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to rise, we're going to come back down to help you rule and reign in Jerusalem. So God, would you continue to wake us up? Our lives mean something in your kingdom. You want to use us. 
So I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity once again to be the body, to be the hands and feet of Yeshua. Now, those in our midst are also suffering from their own private, personal tragedies. We lift up the Gordons to you at this time as they prepare funeral and a memorial service for their daughter on Tuesday afternoon. Lift up Joe and Lynn, who have by faith purchased tickets to Ethiopia to teach hundreds of Messianic pastors in three locations. Lord, would you bring provision for the vision? Lord, in the natural, it it doesn't work in the natural, but Lord, you have a plan. You have a plan to fund the vision, to get this word out, to expand the tent pegs, God. There's so many of our brothers and sisters in Gondar and in Addis who are in displacement camps, don't even have drinking water, have been rejected by Israel. They're Jews. They don't fit the paradigm of what Israel considers who a Jew is. And so God, in the meantime, as they're in these camps, Lord, as they are assembling in Messianic congregations, they need proper training. Lord, would you use us, this dinky, small congregation on the west coast of the United States, to send an emissary, emissaries, to bless and to instruct to equip and to train, God. Your hand is not short to provide those who are in school right now, those who are working a job. The Lord is putting an opportunity before you to open your mouth and He will fill it with His Word. The world is looking for answers. And so, God, thank You for allowing us to partner with You. We yield to Your Lordship today. We worship You and praise You as one of these elders and living beings in heaven. God, that is our assignment today. We count it an honor to worship you, Lord, as you settle our heart. Thank you for the only news that will ever matter, the Word of God. Hallelujah. I want to send you out to be a blessing in your lives, in the highways and byways of your lives. Receive God's blessing from His Word. Ya er Adonai pon velecha vichuneka. Yisa Adonai pon velecha viasem lecha shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai, lift up his countenance above you and grant you and your home today. Shalom, shalom, perfect peace in Yeshua's name. Amen. Good Shabbos, everybody. Shabbat shalom. Shalom.